Welcome to the Hidden Bookcase. Come through and get cozy. Pick a book, your favorite book, that's the one that opens this room. Inside you'll find a warm fire, a loving cat, and a wide skylight to the stars. And a dangerously high Tibby Redpile. I'm Morgan, I use they them pronouns, and I am a being of sewn together parts. I'm Soren, I use he him pronouns, and I am a wolf in a doublet. I'm Kate, I use she her pronouns, and I am a mischievous troll in front of a bridge. Soren and I have been friends for over a decade, and the two of us are always swapping books. Each fortnight, the two of us, sometimes with help from a friend, take it in turns to recommend one another a favourite read. The first time reader tells us what they know about the book, makes some predictions about what they don't, and then we discuss our thoughts with all of you bookworms. This month is Spooky Month. So today, let's get to talking about... The Book of Lost Things by John Connolly. So we have Kate with us today. Woo! Hello. Thank you for being here. Oh, I've been waiting to be here for this specific book since before this podcast even was like a real thing in the world. (laughs) I remember when Morgan was reading the first book and I was like, do you know what book you should do for this podcast? You should do The Book of Lost Things by John Connolly because it's the best book in the world. Then they were like, yeah, no, we'll definitely do it. And then we just took 500 years. A long time later. But we're here, finally. And Kate, how did you find out about the best book in the world. Right, so I was 11. A friend that I still have brought in this fairly battered book and was like, my brother gave me this. And she was reading it and it's like, this is the best thing in the world, you absolutely have to read it. So I borrowed her copy, I read it, changed my life, it felt like, at the time. Can you tell us what it's about, Kate? So, little boy, his mum dies at the very opening of the book and he is understandably having a hard time with that him and his dad are struggling they're trying to kind of like reconfigure what their life is and then his dad gets with this other woman she falls pregnant so they get married and david is struggling with this new life that he's been presented with but doesn't want as his life is getting more and more unpleasant he finds the boundaries of our world and this other world this world of stories melding together until eventually he crosses entirely into the the world and many things ensue and he comes out of it a very changed boy but for the better i think this is what the magic books feels like to me this book and everyone should read it so go do that if you haven't read it now is a good time to stop the episode (laughs) go read the book and then come back because there will be spoilers past this point so many should we listen to the blind before we get any further in considering that i have known kate for two slash four years depending on who you ask i actually have no idea what it's about i have no idea who the characters are i have no idea what the plot is i don't know what the setting is i don't know what the vibes are i literally know nothing about this book maybe it's portal fantasy somehow it's fairy tale-esque i actually don't know anything about this book i'm so sorry kate okay so yes portal fantasy i feel like the protagonist is like a big reader and it's like the books that he reads he ends up going into i think it's one of those sorts of things okay I feel like horror vibes. Not a kid's book, but Kate read it at a really young age. Mm, okay. I know that much. Considering that one of the reviews in the front is from Jeffrey Deva, who wrote the Dexter series. Yeah, young protagonist, which I think is why it sometimes gets mislabeled as a children's book. I feel like he's like 12 or something. And I think he's gay. I think the protagonist is gay. I might be wrong, but I feel like I heard that somewhere. So. so well, predictions. Oh, yeah, well, predictions. Do you have anything? Rapunzel retelling. From the thorns okay. on the cover. That's where I'm wow. going. Um, oh, I do know one more thing about this. I actually made a Reddit post years and years ago. No one dig this out, please. And I was like, does anyone have any books that remind them of Over the Garden Wall? And someone suggested this. Oh, I see that. So I'm very excited on that front. So I'm going to make a prediction based on that. 
and my prediction based on that is that at some point the main character is going to be controlled in a creepy way, like he's going to be puppeted or something, mm. or like possessed. Um, that's my prediction. How did we do on predictions? Not that well? I feel like I have to say, when I said Rapunzel retelling, I did in fact mean Sleeping Beauty retelling, and I was just completely talking nonsense. And considering that there was kind of Sleeping Beauty retelling bit in there with the like wall of thorns, I was right. To be fair, OG Rapunzel has thorns as well. Does she? Yeah, she gets blinded. That's what I thought you meant. You gave me far too much credit, sorry. <laughs> Also, I guess he kind of does get controlled in that same scene. Yeah. His mind is being messed with a little bit. Yeah, it is. His mind is being messed with... Throughout, arguably. Just not having a good time, consistently. When me and my friend went into this, we thought this was aimed at kids. And then we finished it and we were like, no, it's not. It is not aimed at children. They're beheading. The minute he gets to the other worlds is maybe a little bit of a tip-off there. Mm-hmm. I do feel like it's quite similar to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm. The Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe is actually definitely a kid's book, but there's so much death and murder and graphic violence, but it is still very much for kids. Maybe it's that we've become more like, do we let kids read that now? Maybe not. I've always found it really interesting. I always love the way that John Connolly talks about it. He didn't intend it for kids. He loves that everybody can find something in it, but this is an adult's fairy tale. It um, had a rather large impact on mine and my friend's 11-year-old brains. <laughs> so take that what you will. <laughs> what else did we say in our blind? I don't remember. David's gay. Incorrect. There was a prominent gay character, which is, I think, where I got that from. Oh my god, the impact that Roland had on me as a child. Oh my god, my heart. His storyline was one of the ones that made me cry the most. Was that one of your first times coming across it in literature? Because I felt like it was around that age that I like found stuff with queer characters. Yeah, probably. I didn't register queer characters quite so much because where I grew up was quite a queer place. Mm-hmm. So I had queer families and queer people in my reality before I ever had them in my fiction. I loved them just as much, but they registered as less groundbreaking as they did for like other queer people. One of the things that Connolly has talked about in people's reception of this book, and one of the few things that he did chain for the 10th anniversary illustrated edition reprint, he'd met this queer woman who'd read this book and it had a big impact on her and she came to him and she talked about how much she loved the book, specifically how important Roland had been to her and her journey with her own sexuality and her own coming out. And the only thing she said to him is that in the most crucial moment in the original version, Connolly uses the word friend and she's like, they're companions. And he changed it. So many of the other times their relationships mentioned throughout the book, it's still friend. But in that one specific conversation where it's much weightier than a lot of the other, it's changed to companion. Even without that change, it's so very clear that these two men are in love and in a relationship. I got it when I was 11. I got it now. But I loved the changing of friend to companion, the way that he talks about the importance of that and the weight that words have made my queer heart very happy for that change. On the subject of the new illustrated edition, we should talk about the cover briefly before we forget. I'm loving the green and gold. Nothing will ever be the red and black for me. That's the one I started on. That's my baby. The red and black feels much more dangerous to me as well. Mm. But I love the green and gold. I love the foiling. And I loved the, again, when they were reprinting, he was so adamant that the cover should stay the same because it's all cut out of paper. It just fits so well that the cover should be 
something designed from paper that stories are written on. Complementing that, the woodcuts in this edition are gorgeous. It's really nice to use that medium that has so traditionally accompanied fairy tales. That came from a special edition. I think less than 300 copies were ever printed of that special edition with the woodcuts. When they were reprinting, Connolly was like, include the woodcuts, they're really pretty and everyone should see them. And I'm very glad that I got to see them because obviously my original copy doesn't have them and I love them. I feel like that's also a very high compliment when you grew up with the book. Yeah, but I think it's exactly what you said. I think it's woodcut, that style of art is so interlinked with the idea of fairy tales and old stories and dark stories. I think it just marries really well. I feel like we have to address the elephant in the room, which is over the garden wall. (laughs) Yeah, to be fair, it's in the blind and I didn't explain what it was in the blind. Over the garden wall is a 10 episode limited series that ran on Cartoon Network in like 20... 2014, I think. 2014, there you go. I've watched it every year since. It's the epitome of autumnal vibes. And it is about two children who are stepbrothers who end up in a magical otherworld, also due to a near-death experience, and are going through a strange emotional journey where they meet lots of whimsical characters and there are also serious horror elements. As soon as the, are you dead? Am I dead? Are we dead? I was like, oh my god, it's over the garden wall. Also, there's a woodsman. I thought that was funny. Mm, The woodsman who like takes him under the wing and is like, oh yeah, be careful of the beast. (laughs) Yeah, there are a lot of similarities for sure. There are also, I didn't pick up on this the first time I read it, three or four distinct moments that are very Stardust. I was already obsessed with Stardust by the time I came to read this book. One of the moments in the book that I can remember is he's in the fortress with the Enchantress and he's gone in after Roland and he's trying to find what's going on. And one of the bodies that's there has a white flower, like a snowdrop, kind of in his lapel or at his breast for luck as it's described in the book, and I'm like, Stardust. This feels like it fits so well into that 2000s kids fantasy films, except it's not a film, it's a book, but it feels like it could fit in so seamlessly. And it's not just because it's like, oh yeah, The Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe is also set during the war and has a portal fantasy where maybe they're dead. Speaking of the war, I love how that's introduced. You don't go into the book knowing what year it is. When I first read it, Obviously, going into it with like an 11 year old bias, I assume it was our like current time. There are lots of little clues as to kind of what time period it is, and then it gets very explicit about bombs and anti blitz machines and things. And then it explicitly talks about Hitler. I think it's believable from the point of view of David because this is pretty normal for him, actually. He's not been alive that long. This is just sort of how things are. Like, you're still learning the operating rules of the world when you're 12. Yeah, exactly. And you get the information kind of in a very childlike way. That is what makes it so accessible and so believable as a child that this book is meant for you to be reading it rather than for an adult audience. I feel like the fact that it's so vague in how it sets the scene to begin with makes it feel almost contemporary with the time because if you are writing a contemporary book you don't go it is 1942 and this is what's happening in the news and yada yada yada. whereas when you're deliberately setting out to write a historical novel you go this is what's on the tv right now this is what i heard on the radio this is a marker oh look this thing that was only invented after 1960 isn't here whereas this is kind of just like this is how the world is and you're like is it hang on a sec let me just check outside uh blitz okay interesting (laughs) also not to put on my arthurian romance english hat but having a very vague location and a vague time setting for this fairy tale narrative 
is part of the genre, looking at this faraway romanticized world. Because it's not specific, it can be romanticized a little bit. Displacing it from time allows it to have that sort of whimsical, wishy-washy kind of vibe. And this book has that. So maybe it's an Arthurian romance. Another thing in the Arthurian romance structure is the disintegration of the home. Everyone is acting as if it's still okay, but you notice that things have degraded, even if people are pretending they aren't. So you voyage out into nature, you meet lots of different nature spirits who help you along your way. And as you do, you learn how to integrate your old life with your new knowledge. And then you bring that knowledge back into the home and you reintegrate it so that it is now healed. And that is the plot of this book. Yes, it very much is. This is what I mean when I say that this book is one of those books that's for people who read and people who love books. Everything about it takes everything that is familiar and you can't even exactly say why it's familiar or why it feels right and it just brings it together. Everything is recognisable all the way through. Nothing is really out there. Nothing is really surprising but it is and it's kind of weaved really nicely in that it isn't super run-of-the-mill and really predictable and exactly as you know it but there's so many familiar landmarks that you can kind of attach yourself to and see yourself in and see your own experience and it's just brilliant the way that john Connolly talks about this book in that it kind of exists apart from the rest of his works I really love. He's like, I started it with the first line and then the rest just kind of appeared. Obviously, a lot of authors all, always say that. They're like, oh, the story just kind of came to me. The story read itself. The characters came to me and I just put them onto the page. But I just love the way that he always talks about it in a way that is so different to his other works. And it exists in a very different realm <laughs> to lots of his other work. Okay, I feel like this is the moment I have to bring up my devil's advocate opinion here, because I didn't love this. I've got to be honest on this show, or else everything falls apart. No, no, no. No, right. Legal disclaimer. Neither of you are actually allowed to dislike it. I, you were supposed to be aware of that coming into this. I'll, I'll see myself out. I'm sorry. Thank you for listening to The Hidden Bookcase. We're leaving now. <laughs> the end of the episode, folks. Goodbye. Good night. We'll be back here in two weeks. <laughs> I've taken over now. This is just the Book of Lost Things appreciation podcast. Soren is incorrect. Admitting to the fact that I'm incorrect, but jumping off what you were saying, Connolly's, oh, this just came to me. I'm very appreciative of that as an exciting experience. It's definitely something that's happened to me. But I feel like I left this feeling like there wasn't a huge amount of thought put into it. And that is something that grated with me. How the fairy tales were subverted. I think that it was a very surface level subversion. It pained me that at the end of this fairly long book, it didn't pass the Bechdel test. And for example, doing a version of Hansel and Gretel where Hansel is head in the clouds and Gretel is very down to earth. She just sort of feels like older sister trope or doing a version of Snow White where she's a fat slob. That was its own whole can of worms because that was just an uncomfortable chapter to read. <laughs> but the communist dwarves! I love the communist dwarves so much. The monsters dwarves talking about their chains of oppression and how that is coming from the book in David's bedroom that he talked about earlier when the books start to whisper to him and he's like, oh, this really weird book about communism murder really understand and then you get these dwarves i love it did not love snow white though i do have to admit the woman in this book in particular i feel very much fell into fairy tale archetypes it just felt like there weren't people in the way that the male characters were 
which was disappointing when this sets out to subvert and to be like, here's all of these assumptions in traditional fairy tales, let's take those apart and examine them. Yeah, I have to preface this with, I have just finished my term as president of the Exeter University Feminist Society, and you aren't wrong, there are no good female characters in this book at all. The closest you get is Rose, really, and even that at the end is kind of framed by... um. David being like, yeah, she's chill, actually. Soz for being a prick, you were probably under a lot of stress. The women are an issue in the there are none, okay? But this book is still flawless. I will, like, go to the grave with. Speaking of going to the grave as well, I wish Roland hadn't had to die with his lover. I know, it was 20 years ago, I get it. I was trying to do it in the context of its time. Yeah, I mean, they didn't lie to us. Raphael was already dead by the time we met Roland. Over the many years that I've had to think about this book, how far do I want to interpret it as, like, this is a new world versus this is a delusional episode or he was dead and then he wasn't. Where do I want to go? Um, I don't know. The fact that it ends with him returning as he dies, that is an afterlife. And I love that it kind of changes to serve that purpose at the end. But then it's another world and I love it. And it can be one of death. It can be one of a, a traumatized child creating another world to escape into when you get exploded by a plane. And um, why isn't that in itself real because it was his reality for however long we get so many hints that the world is informed by the books in his room by the experiences that david had and obviously the explanation for that in the book is that the world is influenced by whoever is king and whoever kind of comes into this world from our world the wolves being what they are is because Jonathan, the old previous king, was terrified of wolves, so they became more of a villain. The weird worm, apparently David brought that with him. We don't really get an explanation of how or why, but apparently that came with him. He specifically mentions not liking the bugs encroaching on his room in the new house. Yeah, and also I just always loved how the crooked man just disintegrated at the end, and he is made of insects. I love how much his life is attached to the fabric of that world. It's a very childlike yardstick for what is nasty and what is evil. It's like everything gross and creepy and crawly. This literal personification and embodiment of all evil. I was picturing the entire time the boiler room guy from Spirited Away. No! I know, I know he's great, but that's what I was picturing, just like without all the legs. To this day, the scene where David looks back at the house and the crooked man is in his room and then he locks eyes with David and they pause for a minute and then the crooked man drops to the floor. Nothing makes my skin crawl and the hairs on the back of my neck stand up more than that moment. I decided to annotate this version as I was going through it. There are so many times where I've literally just written vomit around the crooked man. I drew a sad face when David and Rose weren't getting on and I've always had a soft spot for Rose. I love her by the end. I love how even though David's dad and Rose get divorced by the end of it, he stays in Rose's life and he goes back and he visits her. Especially as Georgie dies as well. What was the point of David saving your f***ing life, Georgie, if you're just going to go fight in like the Vietnam War when you don't even have to? 
Why? This was one of the things that chafed with me. I talked about this a little bit with The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, which at the end collapses into this sort of parade of misery, which happens at the end of this, but like a lot faster. <laughs> what am I really supposed to be taking away? Maybe I'm missing something as a reader and I'm very open to that idea. But even in the way that the horror is presented, it feels a bit shock factory to me. And I don't feel like it's really saying anything about particularly the other parade of misery where we're finding out about the Crooked Man's list of crimes when David is in his like den, if you will. Love it. He's every ghost story, he's every cautionary tale, he's every evil thing that every government has ever done. He's every medieval torture device, he's every creep. He isn't human, he's just all the bad that human make. Isn't it more horrifying to leave that vague? Maybe! Isn't it more horrifying for him to just be a human then? Because as you said, those are all horrible things that humans have done. I guess there's some bugs and things in there. But he's also very much presented as an old and disabled man. I mean, is he? He can run some disabled people can run (laughs) (laughs) speak for yourself (laughs) he's creepy because he's human but he is a non-human device used to kind of highlight how horrible humanity can be i always kind of felt like that's fair and i don't know if he's disabled maybe disabled isn't the word but i feel like his deformity and his ugliness is very much emphasized in conjunction with his evilness physiognomy has entered the chat yeah because something looks disgusting it is disgusting which is a very fairy tale trope maybe that's why it's there because this whole thing is informed by archaic fairy tale stereotypes oh no completely but i was just like are we not twisting this and then we weren't even the wolves are evil i was holding out for them to be all right somehow to be fair they just wanted to pose the throne a noble aim as far as i can say they just want to have another one <laughs> i wanted human power and also human flesh i feel like we should say for more reading on deconstructing fairy tales and disability everyone should go read disfigured on fairy tales disability and making space by amanda leduc that will open your mind to all of these things and for deconstructing the role of wolves in fairy tales which is a less pressing issue but a little bit important for biodiversity and ecology and stuff you should read wolfish by erica berry as a kid i was scared of wolves so me and jonathan shaking hands i love wolves now i do i think they're incredible they're really interesting and have a great method of how to treat disabled members of society but i was terrified of them as a child like i genuinely would lie awake in bed being like there's a wolf under my bed it is going to eat me i am i'm going to die in my bedroom in a country where there are no free wolves there is a wolf (laughs) under my bed i feel like wolves are alongside quicksand on those things as a kid you're like this is going to be so relevant to my life this is a deep deep threat to my life every story is warning me about these it's going to happen it's going to occur i was just not eating the warnings i was like is the wolf really a bad guy he just needs to eat hear him out soren i was scared of everything as a child hear hear him out (laughs) (laughs) for some reason wolves weren't on that list of things basically everything else was on that list of things but werewolves and wolves were not on that list of things oh i was terrified loved them but was terrified. I did enjoy that Jonathan had that combination fascination fear, because I feel like that is a very childish thing where you get fixated on something. I didn't mean to go on this long of a tangent about wolves. Morgan, who was your favourite character? I like the woodsman. Mm. It's like the first father figure, and he's like, yeah, I'll sacrifice myself for this child that I just met. And then the bit at the end where he's like, they were all my children. It's a rough job just shepherding all of these emotionally disturbed children. Knowing that they're all gonna die. It must be a really interesting one on a reread, actually. Rereading it, also knowing that you think he's gonna die and then he actually isn't dead as well. The first time I read it, another one of the things I should have been like, 
maybe this isn't for children. You've bonded so fiercely to the woodsman. And then he dies and in a really horrific way, broke me, destroyed me, absolutely inconsolable. Then he turns up at the end being like, what's up, my man? I kind of wanted him to stay dead. Not because I didn't love him, because I did love him. I would have been fine with him staying dead. And then when David has lived his life and he's dying and he's returning to this other world in death for the woodsman to meet him there i would have loved that i get that the woodsman shepherding david from the castle after the final battle back to the tree doorway i get that that has a nice symmetry that has a nice symbolism that has a nice message yes david's become more of a man during his journey here but he is still a child he does still need guiding and he does still need his father figure to take him home that is nice rather than david having to be a grown-up again on his own and, and travel back through the world but then it's also that kind of would have served at least a similar purpose had the woodsman stayed dead. Yeah, I think I'd be inclined to leave him dead just because this is a narrative that is interrogating loss, and particularly the loss of David's mother, so it feels sort of appropriate for a parental figure to stay dead at least until you get to your happy afterlife epilogue situation. The woodsman was my favourite character. He's just a dad, a tired little dad living in the woods, and I love that for him. Soren, who's your favourite character? I want to shout out to Fletcher just because I liked him. He was just a stand-up guy. He was doing his best. He had a good head on his shoulders. I love an everyman. What can I say? Lots of things are trying to f***ing destroy my village. Can you f***ing help? Um, but I think I'm going to have to go with Roland. I feel like that was when I was the most engaged. I did find the transience of everyone a little bit difficult. Having him around for so long was definitely helpful because you did get to build up a bit of a bond with him. And you know, I'm queer, so I guess I'm just biased. <laughs> <laughs> he's a knight as well literally gay knight love story like and also it's the whole magical sleep trope as well that he's sort of tangentially related to which i love so i love roland him and his story was definitely very very significant on me growing up favorite character question mark no who is your favorite character? Then? i don't know I don't know. The crooked man and the enchantress always very much stayed with me how good they were at conveying this sense of horror and evil and wrongness that I didn't get as much at the time of first reading it because this is written for adults. It was more impactful to me when I was a kid because it wasn't like other things that I was reading because I was reading things for children and this was not. They've left their very significant mark on me, but I also can't really then be like, they're my favourite character. Because they make me want to literally peel my skin off Crooked Man style. A well-written villain can be your favourite character without being your favourite person. Yeah, but these are just pure evil. They aren't. It's different. But I mean, I like them because you think they're a good representation of whatever theme they're trying to espouse. Again, I just love everything that she does with this book, even though it's being sexist. There's just no woman in it. The closest we get is Rose. I appreciated that she wasn't just the villainous stepmother. Yes. It reminded me a lot of the film A Whisker Away, which is about a girl who's also adjusting to having a new stepmother and also just like normal coming of age, things like a crush that she doesn't know how to handle. And honestly, probably just being neurodivergent and everyone else around her not getting that. And the way in which she sort of like goes into this other world kind of also feels like death, maybe. That was a very fun relationship as well in that the stepmother, she's like a good person and is trying, but you can also understand where the rift comes from. Children can't process their emotions because they're children. So David's a prick to her. 
that's not very nice for Rose. To be fair, I feel like most of the time he's also making an effort. He is. I always loved that relationship because it just felt really human and it felt really real and it felt really balanced, especially by the end. It honestly feels like the most fleshed out relationship in the whole book, which like obviously it's kind of the crux of the drama because it is one of the reasons that David's trying to like adjust. But it does feel like the central theme of the book. I like that it's her who's there mm. when he wakes up, not his dad. And I like the focus is on Rose and David's relationship rather than David and his dad. It's always going to be between Roland and the woodsman, really, in terms of who my favourite character is. I also always loved Anna. She's a dead girl in a jar and she's heartbreaking, but she's also just really nice. We don't get a huge amount of her, but her and Jonathan's relationship and the way that it reflects David and Georgie's, but it's very different. I, I, I love Anna. I love her. Rapid fire quotes. I mean, it's just the fact that Every chapter starts with of, love that. How the first chapter is called of all that was found and all that was lost. And the final chapter is all that was lost and all that was found again. And then how the last line of the book is literally, David closed his eyes as all that was lost was found again. It's just chef's kiss. Those are the things that properly sum up the book for me. The first and last chapter title, the last line and the first line, once upon a time, for that's how all good stories should begin, there was a boy who lost his mother. The way that line is imprinted on me and the way that the final line is imprinted on me, like they are seared behind each eyelid. I will never forget them. This is a fairy tale and I just love it. Still don't really understand why his wife and child had to die. Don't really get it. Just losing everything. Yeah, like, what's the point? You've already decided that Georgie is going to go fight in a war for which his country wasn't even conscripted to fight in. And then he's going to die in it, like, fine. And then you're like, oh, and then his wife and child died in childbirth. And I make the glib observation that maybe Georgie was too influenced by David's understanding of manhood as militaristic and violent. I just cut out the bit where it's like, yeah, and everyone who David loved died just as the crooked man said he would. Yeah, those are my favourite quote. They just kind of bookend really perfectly. And those are the things that I've like, remembered. So those are my thoughts. That's like a perfect segue into final thoughts. Because those are yours. <laughs> Morgan, what are yours? I'm glad that I finally read this book. But Kate can stop yelling at me about it now. Yeah, for your own personal safety. <laughs> yeah, actually, Morgan, you've been quite quiet. Did you secretly hate this book? And are you just not telling me? I'm going to give this book four stars out of five. I did originally rate it five stars, but I think that's because I feared for my safety. I think this book is four stars. It was very vibey. I liked what it was doing literarily. I appreciated everything that it did. I just left feeling slightly underwhelmed, which I know is more to do with I'm a very character-based person. And obviously this is not a very character-based book. I felt like I was slightly sliding off the characters a bit. It's a four star, but I can understand why it's a five star for you and now that i've read this i understand you on a completely different level soren mr werewolf man what are your final thoughts <laughs> this just wasn't for me i can understand why people love it the prose we haven't really talked about it very much i couldn't get my teeth into it particularly the final battles where i was kind of realizing what i didn't like about it it felt very disconnected the narrative voice and i understand what it was trying to do with like a fairy tale esque narrative voice but it just made it hard for me to be absorbed this was middle of the road for me so I'm kind of like 2.5 but then I'm losing a half star I'm sorry for Snow White because it was just too much I'm just so tired of Fatphobia and Bones mm. and Kate's making an extremely <laughs> an expression <laughs> that will not translate in audio format but I hope that you at home can imagine it Soren is incorrect 
Can you give us the correct opinion, please? Five out of five. Everyone should read it. Read it too young. Let it change your brain chemistry. Go back in time. Read it as a 12-year-old. We do have some under-18s who listen to this podcast. We're influencing the team. (laughs) (laughs) It will teach you how to understand loss and gay knights and weird worms that are, are, are never really addressed as to why they're there. All the priorities of childhood. Lost gay knights and weird worms. Yeah, I just, I fucking love this book. It has fairy tales. It lets you fall into it. It's another world. It's the embodiment of what a lot of readers like to do by creating other worlds for themselves. And I just, I'm very fond. For those who are very fond, what would you recommend they read next? I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot. So many other books. I'm like, if you like this, here's something else. I don't know if I'm just too close to this. It always makes me want to read fairy tales, not retellings, just fairy tales. Or if you are a younger listener, the We Free Men series by Terry Pratchett. Five book series set within the world of Discworld. You don't have to have read any of the Discworld books. The protagonist is Tiffany A. King. She's nine in the first book. Those books also changed my brain chemistry in a very similar way. Lots of elements of old world folklore and old English fairy tales, Celtic mythology that comes into it. On the subject of fairy tales, if you're just looking to read a bunch of fairy tales, Professor Ashley Mann from the University of Pittsburgh has an amazing website that's been up since 1996. And it's all indexed by type, whether that's abduction by fae or transformation into a beast, all indexed by location. I guarantee you that there's some on there that you've never heard of, even if you've read a lot of fairy tales. Resource, and it's all free, so I'm definitely putting that in the show notes. I'm going to recommend T. Kingfisher's books. T. Kingfisher writes fairy tale esque worlds, but with a modern lens and quite a comedic lens. Nettle and Bone, for example, is about a princess who's a nun, and then she realizes that her older sister is being abused by the prince that she's married to. And so she goes on this huge quest with a demonically possessed chicken and two old women who are also witches and a depressed knight who's like, yeah, I tried to off myself, didn't work, and now I'm in the service of the fae. I hate when that happens. Yeah, it really brings your week down, doesn't it? Yeah, so I'm going to recommend Nettle and Bone by T. Kingfisher because fairy tale vibes. And of course, Disfigured by Amanda Leduc because we love to bring some nonfiction to this house every so often. And we do have to remember that so many fairy tales are so very inherently ableist. You can't love them without engaging with that side of them. Go watch Over the Garden Wall, everybody. Yeah, I was going to say that. It's October right now as you're listening to this, if you're listening to it when it came out. I guess the podcast is on the internet forever, so you can listen to it whenever. Regardless, it doesn't matter what time of year it is. Make yourself a hot chocolate. It's perfect. Read this, then go watch that. I do have one novel recommendation as well. The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman feels Mm. very adjacent to this in that it's also about dealing with the breakdown or new structure of a family unit. And it has horror elements and it has a 12-ish year old protagonist who really loves his books and is a little bit socially inept with some magical realism elements where it very much feels like the fantasy going on is informed by his mindset and character growth. We've come to the end of Spooky Month, but we're keeping the eerie vibes going, and we will be plunging straight into Necromancy November. Next time we'll be doing Sabriel by Garth Nix, which neither of us has read, but we are having a very exciting guest on to talk about one of her favourite books of all time, Amanda McLaughlin from Spirits Podcast and Multitude Network. Very exciting. I can't wait to talk to her. But until then, you're always welcome through the bookcase. Don't forget to scratch the cat on your way out. Thank you for listening to The Hidden Bookcase, a production of Planar Prod. 
On this episode, you heard Kate Taylor, Morgan Greensmith, and Soren Briarwood discussing The Book of Lost Things by John Connolly. You can find out more about this book at johnconnollybooks.com, and you can follow Connolly on Twitter at jconnollybooks. A huge thank you to Kate for joining us for this episode. Having you on was like a fairy tale. You can find her photography work on Instagram at kaytaylor underscore photos. You can find The Hidden Bookcase on Twitter at Hidden Bookcase, and on Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, and TikTok at Hidden Bookcase Podcast. Find out more about Planar Prod at planarprod.com. Know what we should read next, or want to chat to us about what you thought of this episode's read? You can reach us at thehiddenbookcase at gmail.com, send us a DM on social media, or join our growing community of bookworms on our Discord. The link is in the show notes. If you're enjoying The Hidden Bookcase, please consider leaving us a rating or a review, or you can always tell a friend how to find us. Your whispers are the best way for bookworms to discover our show. On our next episode, which will be out on Monday, the 6th of November, we'll be discussing Sabriel by Garth Nix alongside Amanda McLaughlin from Multitude. We hope to see you then, and in the meantime, you're always welcome through the bookcase.